0: Hello, my name is Devin Johnson. I'm a business program manager on Microsoft's legal business operations strategy and modern legal team. I produce content for the Business of Law podcast, including this episode. This episode, we're speaking with Jeff Carr, who is an avid race car driver, Manhattan mixologist, and formal general counsel. In this episode, we will discuss how to run a legal department like a business.
1: All right, today on the Business of Law podcast, we have a tale of two cars. So Jeff Carr uh, is joining us. He currently lists himself as a husband, race car driver, Manhattan mixologist, and legal rebel, revolutionary activist. But we're gonna get into a bit more of what got him to that place. And we also have Candace Carr, who is on our modern legal team and she is going to be picking up more of the Business of Law podcast uh, hosting uh, in the coming weeks and months. And so this seemed like a good opportunity to get that started. Jeff, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today.
2: Thank you for having me here, Jason. It's great to be here.
1: So you are uh, one of the most interesting people that I have spoken to about how you actually make this whole business, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on the, my content, practice of law work. And I wanted to ground us a little bit in a little bit of how your journey progressed. And we'll get into some of the details of, of some of the things you've done that I think are really compelling and interesting, but how did you start your career?
2: Okay, well, you have to turn the way back machine on and go way, way back. Um, And it it goes back to my my early days when I first started working. I first worked in a family business, which was an auto body shop. And I actually learned about pricing services from watching that business operate. I then became a lifeguard. And I actually learned the power of prevention as opposed to heroism from that. I went to college and and I was supposed to go to the Naval Academy. And in a great disappointment to my family, I went to the University of Virginia instead. Um, And I was a music major when I first started out and what I learned from music was that uh, music is just math um, and creative great music is taking the rules of math and changing them just slightly. I also realized that I was never going to have a career as a musician, so I ended up studying nuclear war theory back in the day, wrote a thesis on a comparison of the Soviet and U.S. civil defense systems. So when I got out of uh, undergraduate school, I could, have gone, I could have been a spy. I could have gone to the Foreign Service. I could have um, uh, gone to a Ph.D. program um, or I could have gone to law school. Those are sort of the basic choices. I ended up going to Georgetown and was in their joint degree program for um, both law and foreign affairs. Two thirds of the way through that, I realized that the foreign affairs degree was just sort of silly and very, very expensive. So I really focused on law. And then I, at the first part of my career, I did all the things that you're supposed to do as a, a young lawyer who has always done well in school. I clerked for a federal judge. I worked for a big law firm. I actually got traded like a ball player at one point. I got a telex. This is how old I am. I got a telex while I was down in Brazil that said, when you come back, you're no longer an associate at Wald, Harker, and Ross. You're now an associate at Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher. And I, at that point, that was great because I made a lot more money and I was doing exactly the same work. But it was also horrible because the chances of becoming a partner as an international trade lawyer in a big New York firm were about zero. And so a few years later, exactly that happened. I was a fifth year associate. The partner I worked with came in and told me, you know, we can only make one partner out of the group and it isn't going to be you, Jeff. That was a cathartic and devastating point in my life. Um, and I actually thought that I hated the practice of law. And so I left the practice of law. And in a fit of idiocy, I formed an international consulting and investment banking company with two other guys. We had offices in Washington, Manila, Prague, Rio, and a correspondent office in Moscow. And we worked mostly in privatization. We also did import and export work and worked um, on what was then called a GAT practice. Now, now known as the World Trade Organization. I did that for a few years, and what I learned during that period of time is I got my MBA, but I got it the hard way by forming a business, running a business, running it right into the ground on the brink of failure. We, we never miss payroll for our people, but we often miss payroll for the partners. And so after about five years, what I learned was I didn't hate the practice of law. I hated the business of law, at least as it was done back in the 80s and the early 90s. So I actually thought about going into the Navy, going back and trying to, to make my family proud of me again. I was going to be a JAG officer. Uh, talked with them a lot, um, and they said, no, you're not going to be a JAG officer. We're going to put you in naval intelligence. I came home all excited, told my wife um, at that point, you know, I'm gonna I'm going to go to officer candidate school. I'll be gone for about six months, honey, but, you know, that's no big deal. I've been gone all the time anyway. She looked at me and she said, you're an idiot. You just have this fantasy about being in dress whites and being a naval officer, making your family proud of you again. You're not leaving me for six months and you're sure not gone uh, to go play with a bunch of 24 and 25 year olds that you can't hang with um, physically. Um, So I ended up going in house. And for me, that was just the right place to go um, because it took away. The pressures of billing and the pressures of, of business development. But what I learned in-house was that in-house was just like outhouse. It was still siloed. It was still, um, it was very activity-based. It was still artisanal work. Um, and because I was a Washington lawyer, now being forced to be a commercial lawyer, I actually needed, I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. So I ended up doing what every Washington lawyer does. You just leverage your network. You try to get more and more people to tell you what they're doing and you steal blatantly from them uh, in order to practice. During my time at in-house, I started at FMC Corporation. I ended up going down to Texas to be a group general counsel. Um, and that company then became a spin-off. The guy that ran it was the guy I went down to work for. He asked me to be his GC. And he also gave me complete freedom to structure the team the way I wanted to structure. It. And from that point on, we really started to think about law and the delivery of legal services as a product, uh, as opposed to just as a service and as a process that needed to be processified. So that's where all my thinking kind of came from, you know, throughout that, that long, long history. So that's what, back in 2014, I retired. Um, I'd been a GC for about uh, 12 years, 13 years. Um, I retired. I did a little bit of work with Valorum, uh, which was a new age law firm, now part of Elevate. Um, Did that for a couple of years. Then I made the mistake of answering the phone. A guy asked me if I would uh, go talk to a company up in Chicago about being their GC. I told him, no, I didn't want to do that. I'd been a GC. I didn't need to do that again. And he used the worst possible words to me. He was a board member of that company and he said, Jeff, as a favor to me, would you go talk to these guys? Which I did. I told them not to hire me. I told them they needed somebody who was younger and had more runway. And they said, no, we need somebody who is going to build a sustainable legal team. Um, and So that's what I've done for the last few years. Um, I'm now on R3 status, which is recently re-retired. Um, and I'm um, I'm enjoying being re-retired. So that's that's my my long and um, convoluted story. It's both a combination of conventional uh, path and the road less traveled.
1: Well, that's a a fabulous journey with some just really interesting experiences along the way that now that I I have some sense of how you run your business, the inputs, it kind of makes sense. So I'm curious about your perspective on how do you view the role of a general counsel within a business and how have you seen that evolve over time based on where you started uh, at the beginning of your career to where it is now
2: um okay let me let me start with the latter part of the question first I mean, it used to be if you were in-house um, in-house counsel we're not viewed as being kind of the top of the food chain back Back in the day when I first started, you know, this was, this was a place where less capable lawyers went to go drink through martini lunches and, um, and just manage the work. The real work, the real lawyering was done if you were an outside lawyer. I, I think that's changed tremendously from the 80s until now. Uh, but I also think it, it has failed to change in the sense that a lot of general counsel, a lot of CLOs fundamentally still believe that they're lawyers. I don't, Um, and when I describe myself, I don't start out by saying I'm a lawyer. I start out by saying I'm not a lawyer, I'm a business person, I'm a race car driver, I'm a lifeguard, whatever it may be. I'm a a business person first and a lawyer second. Um, And the reason I think that's important kind of goes to what I think of as there are only three roles in any organization. There's the role of a leader, there's the role of a manager, and the role of an operator. And I don't care what business you're in, I don't care what you do, those are the only three roles. They can have different titles, but they are the only three roles. And they're very distinct roles. Um, Leaders are in in charge of uh, principles, what do we believe. Uh, They're in charge of people, making sure we've got the right people on the bus, and they're in charge of platforms. You know, operators, the, the, the third tier, They're the ones that are turning the levers on the machines. They're the ones that are operating processes. Lawyers, when they are lawyering, are just operators. And I use the word just. There's no dishonor in being an operator. It's a wonderful thing. But because you're a lawyer, does not make you a manager or a leader. Those are two completely different functions. Um, So if you then peel that back, what does it mean to be a GC within a company? Um, A GC, not is is a leader by definition really uh, or they should be in a company they're also a manager in terms of managing putting together and managing a team and then they are also an operator in the operator role basically the gc in my view is the consigliere to the board and the senior management so that's the way i see the role evolving um and the way i see it evolving in the future is really embracing the leadership and manager role much more than the lawyer role. I mean, I I did not spend a lot of my day lawyering. I spent most of my day uh, managing and and then being part of the executive team, being a leader. So that's the way I look at the role today. Um, The challenge is nobody trains people for those three roles. Law schools train people to be operators, to be lawyers. They don't train people to be managers. When you get into a law firm or into a company, you're sort of forced to be a manager. Fine. Better learn it on the fly. Not a necessarily a great way to do it, but nobody teaches you leadership skills. Um, and so I think it's incumbent upon our legal education system and then, um, and then people in the trade to mentor and start developing the leaders of the future.
3: Jeff, this is the the other car (laughs) on the podcast. Um, This is just all fascinating stuff, mainly because I'm I've been practicing for about thirteen years and have always considered myself kind of the operator level, right? And in that, I don't, even though I've been at Microsoft for six years and practicing or had been practicing traditionally, it's it's really hard to get out of that mindset that you're not just, you're not the lawyer, you are actually the business person, but you're absolutely right. Supporting a business means you have to learn the, the business you support and, and, and you know, figure out how to apply those skills. So I don't, and Microsoft's done a great job of, of providing certain skills, you know, trainings or mentorship, or you have to find your way around. But I'm curious to know how you, because you hit on a good point. <laughs> and teach us, you know, and I can tell from the things that you've done, um, including being a lifeguard, <laughs> that you kind of learned this through life skills. But what were some of the things that you did to move from operator to manager to leader? Kind of the mindset and the skill set that you that you
2: Yeah, what a great question, because I, you know, I never went to formal school for any of these mm-hmm. things. Um. So when I first went in-house, I realized that being a Washington lawyer, those skills were pretty useless in a commercial uh, enterprise. I mean, I wasn't in charge of government relations. I was a, I was a commercial lawyer. And I'd, frankly, I'd never done any of that before. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn that on the fly. And you know, one of the things lawyers are pretty good at is learning stuff pretty quickly. Um, and so I had to learn that. But I also it, it also struck me how inefficient we were in the way that we did work, even within a company. Um, And I'm fundamentally lazy. I mean, you know, I wanna leverage other people's work as much as possible uh, rather than reinvent it myself. So that first instance, the the uh, what do we do kind of work, the legal work for a company, that was sort of necessitated um, on job job training. The manager part, I realized that you know, I, I knew nothing about managing people. Um, when I was in my my investment banking days and and consulting days, we were forced to manage people way 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 back then, I started listening to a podcast called manager tools um, and and then I really started listening to it in in um, uh with a lot of dedication um when i when i was in-house and and was managing people there manager and it used to just be a podcast um i also then listened to something called executive book summaries because one of the things i realized was i didn't speak the language of the business Uh, i spoke i spoke law um and and that and, and legalese and that really wasn't particularly useful i needed to learn how to talk to the business people so most of this was sort of self-study self-taught and 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 i'm just intellectually curious about these kinds of things so for me it led me down those paths um and um uh, so you know i i watch a lot of movies and i get an awful lot of life skills from movies and you watch a movie jerry mcguire go read the book um Remove My Cheese, um, uh, you know, listen to podcasts like Manager Tools. I mean, there's just so many things. Moneyball, what a great movie about how to start managing outside counsel and, and changing the practice itself. I mean, it has nothing to do with law, but it has everything to do with um, how you organize a team and how you, how you get the right players on the team. Uh, so, um, you know, I just have always, I guess I've just been a non-traditional thinker Mm -hmm. Uh, that looks like a really traditional lawyer most of the time.
3: One of the, so I was going to ask you something else, but the team piece really resonates with me because I was looking at one of your presentations. I'm guessing you were leading this huge team meeting or um, you were off in a retreat with your legal team kind of explaining what the values of that team should be. I don't know if you
0: remember exactly.
2: Yep, exactly. That was we were having an all hands meeting, uh, including some of our outside people.
3: I saw you up there, (laughs) just kind of (laughs) walking through. These are some of the key values, and I some of them, you know, I just like, oh yes, I've heard some of these before. Um, Like the eighty percent versus hundred. Like, how did you come up with those values? About because it's not that you're just leading a team. What I got from that is that you you really want everyone to feel like part of the team. Things like we're not just lawyers, right? We're all, you know, don't call yourself just lawyers. In fact, we're all disciplined legal professionals, like things that get them in the right mindset. So how do you come up with those values and how do you help people to implement them?
2: Well, and they, like many things, they came from a lot of different sources. The the We Are Not Lawyers actually comes from a book uh, called The code orange or the orange code and it was about the um creation of ing the virtual bank
0: yeah.
2: um and um their their um, trademark catchphrase whatever you want to call it vision statement at the front end was we are not a bank and then they go on to say well you know of course we're a bank but we're just not a bank like you you know right. um you know we don't have brick and mortar we don't i mean they, they actually 10 15 years ago they created what now is quite standard. Um, I, I, that book really resonated with me and it was something I, I um, uh, listened to on executive book summaries. Um, and, um, and as I started thinking about it, I started thinking that, you know, one of the problems in our craft, um, our tribe, is, is this whole concept of lawyer exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually believe law is different and we are somehow different. And even if that's true and we can debate that, it's sort of irrelevant because we have to live within the ecosystem that we're part of. And generally speaking, that's a business. So for me, the we are not lawyers resonated because it was the message I wanted to send to my people. I want you to think differently. And I had it was very interesting. I had a debate with our folks because, you know, they wanted to do consensus based vision statementing and things like that. Well, that's fine, but it really doesn't work very well. I mean, you know, I'm a believer in leaders have to establish a vision, uh, and then you do have to build consensus to buy in. My team wanted to add the word just. We are not just lawyers. Um, And I vetoed that uh, and said, you know, you're you're missing the point. Uh, The point is we are not lawyers like you're used to dealing with. That's the message I want our customers, um, our business people to understand. Um and so that was one of the genesis of, of, of that whole concept. The the other was an experience I had at FMC Technologies when we had a very distressing um event happen. Um we had a, a new and this is all public, it was in the paper, we had a, a noose incident, you know, a hangman's noose mm-hmm. incident in one of our, our operations, and then about two months later we had another one that caused us as an executive team to take a step back. I mean, you know, we had corporate values that talked about valuing people and diversity and on and on and on. But it took a, made us take a step back and said, how in the world did, did, could we have permitted an environment to be created and exist where this was possible? And it, and it made us as a management team go back to look at our, our core values and our principles and then really to define what we meant by them. Um, What were the behaviors under each of those principles? What do the words mean? And then what were the behaviors that were acceptable and unacceptable? And then how do we hold ourselves accountable to make sure that those behaviors are being um, um, observed and lived with rigor? Um, And and so for me, that translated into the legal function we have to go through the same exact process. First, the company, we have to know what are the company's core values because we have to fit within that. And then what do those core values, how do they translate to our function, to our team? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then at the end of the day, uh, I came to the conclusion that um, people are our most important technology uh, and people talk about culture. But unless you actually define culture, you know what are your values, what are your behaviors, what are your roles, and how do you, how do you rigorously apply them? Um, that what I wanted were people that were on the bus that shared those that culture. So, um, diversity the way it's traditionally defined, I embrace. I think is absolutely wonderful. I have a very diverse team. Mm-hmm. However, I want zero diversity. On that culture
0: mm-hmm.
2: on you know what are our principles what do we believe so the most important thing I mean this goes back to sort of who moved my cheese <laughs> th- th- there are four kinds of people in a company uh, there are follow me's I'm, I'm a follow me kind of guy uh, there are lead me um, you know show me where to go and I'm right behind you there are convince me's or take me's you know I- I'm a little skeptical but you know if I see the value in it I will follow and then there are not-me's. The vast majority of people in most companies are in those two middle categories. Very few are, are lead-me's, or are, are, uh, follow-me's, and very few are um, not-me's. But the not-me's are like a cancer. And they're not bad people. They're just not the right cultural fit for the company. And so you have to figure out who who are the not-me's. And you you can never let them on your bus to begin with. And if you find them on your bus for their good and the good of the team, you have to get rid of them. So fundamentally, teaming is about sharing. To me, it's it's about sharing principles and sharing the culture. That's a really long answer to a really great question. So I apologize for that.
3: That is a great answer and kind of gives me some clues, right, as to what you do in order to, to kind of be in the prevention mode. And I mentioned this because I, I saw – I at your retreat slides um, your all hand slides this interesting picture of the firefighter kind of mode and the firefighters are like filling tiny cans with water and this blazing fire right kind of right. The, the noose incident if this is something that's horrible and we have to you know address it but probably even worse. and then next to it is a picture of a lifeguard and now I understand why that picture of a lifeguard exists because you are one you were one yourself um, right? And and I'm thinking your 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 question in one of the slides was how do we move to that prevention mode, which I know as, let's just say, lawyers tend to, or at least the way we were schooled is to be in that reactionary mode, right? That firefighter that's put out the fire. And then right. we're so busy that we're not thinking about how we can prevent things. A lot of the, the stuff that you just talked about was... Kind of taking taking some early steps, right? Creating the values, implementing the values, getting rid of the not me's who are not part of the, the the culture culture set that like represent the kind of values you want to see move forward. Um, what are some other ways, right? A legal team with um, supporting a business can move to that prevention. Like, what is what? Let me ask that. Let me ask you questions. What are the things that pre- are that are preventing us? <laughs> All pun intended from moving <laughs> to, to prevention mode. And then what are the things that we can do to move towards that kind of prevention mode, which is so much better for the business we support and just how we deliver Sure,
2: sure. well, and it's not just confined to law. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is, this kind of permeates a lot of things. We live in a society that venerates heroism and heroes. And um, lawyers are heroes. I mean, you know, you, you ride in, you save the day. you. You solve a problem, you get somebody out of trouble, whatever it may be. So part of this is our own psyche as a profession. It's our own self-worth. Um, but look at firefighters. I mean, you know, it's 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 way more exciting to run into a burning building than it is to be the insurance inspector that makes sure that the fire alarms and sprinklers are working. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a society, we have not yet figured out how to really recognize and promote people that just do their jobs every day and do it really well. We're really good at recognizing heroism and rewarding heroism, um, but we're not as good at, at recognizing and rewarding. Just do your job, you know? And, and it, so that's, that's a, a sort of a, a societal problem. When you then step back from law, because most of the delivery system, is built around activity to address crisis. There is very little incentive to actually change that. One of the beauties about going inside is, um, you know, you get paid either way. Um, and so, at least my perspective was, I, I really didn't want to have to deal with problems. Um, I would rather not have problems in the in the future. But I've heard people, even in-house, they said, you know, I went to company X to be a litigator. You're telling me the company doesn't value litigators. No, no. I'm telling you that no company in its right mind wants litigation. It's a necessary evil. It's part of our society. We have to deal with it. But we don't want more of it. So we don't want to actually be particularly good at it. We'd rather not have it at all. That's actually your job, is to figure out how to not have it. So now let me take this to to how do you practically do this? Because all of this stuff, the problem in all of it, Candice, is it's like eating a whale. You know, where do you start? It's just so damn big. Mm. Um, So where do you start? How do you start changing this behavior? The single most effective tool in our tool chest and the one that is least used is a disciplined after action approach. Mm. Um, And and it's... and. that's for a whole bunch of reasons. It's hard for lawyers because we're introverts. It's hard for us to think about and admit that we could have done something better. Um, we actually don't think of ourselves as decision makers. We often think of ourselves as, um, you know, that's a business decision. That's not my decision. Um, and, and then our hair is on fire. There's always another burning platform to to go to. So it's, it's hard to do after actions, but if you, if you, into this concept of prevention, that it's, it's better, as, as Susskind says, you know, do you want to be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff or do you want to be the fence at the top? Mm-hmm. I want to be the fence at the top. You know, I want to stop the car from going over, over the precipice. And that's, to me, that's a higher and best, better use of a company's legal team is in preventing problems as opposed to being really good at dealing with problems. But that's a sea change in mentality in culture in views and and so part of this is education part of it is trying to figure out okay you know you may be a great lawyer because you're a great litigator or you're a great negotiator you're a great ex but that's not actually what we need uh, we actually need people to take a step back and say um, how do i structure this situation so it doesn't cause a problem in the future how, or, or to the extent that we can mitigate some risks and we accept others, how do we make sure the decision-making process is in place so that um, the right people make the right decisions about the risks that we as an enterprise are going to take? And a lot of times that's not lawyers. They shouldn't be making those decisions. They should be identifying what the risks are. They may be the decision-maker on what legal risks to take or not take. But the business risks of the province are the business people, when you're a member of the executive team, you are a business person, and so you are then involved in that decision making so but a lot of this is just a it's a complete change in the way we think about what we do, how we do it, but more importantly, why do we do it mm-hmm. and, and And I believe the why I mean our our, our stated purpose, our vision in my teams was every legal problem can be prevented our mission was legal optimized problems prevented Mm -hmm. and so everything we did went to those two fundamental bedrock principles i don't think that's a very common approach it sort of mystifies me as to why it isn't a common approach but you know it is what it is
3: yeah yeah and i think Oh, Jeff, I'm interested to see what's happening, what's going to happen in the next year, right, with what we're dealing sure. with right now. Um, and I feel as if people are missing your leadership today as you say, as you enter, did you say R3 mode? Is that?
2: Right. Recently re-retired.
3: <laughs> exactly. And so what if you could picture yourself back in that role as, you know, GC and dealing with this, this new world, uh, the new world we're living in right now and working in, and the, 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 the pandemic, the panic, the kind of reprioritization of how we provide legal services, um, what do you think you as general counsel in that role, what would you advise that general counsel to be doing? At a time like this, and dealing with the challenges
2: coming. Yeah, out. great, great question. You know, because I think you've got both a short term and a longer term yeah. um, perspective. The the short term is is dealing with the problem. If if you had been a, a devotee and an adopter of this kind of a prevention approach, um, your while your enterprise risk management um, processes could never have actually thought about this particular problem in the extent that it, that it, it is. I mean, it is a unknown, unknowable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but at least you would be better placed to deal with some aspects of it. You'd have mechanisms in place to scale up. Um, if you hadn't thought about those things, well, now you have an opportunity to. And, and the thing that, if this has taught us anything, particularly in the legal function, what it has taught us is that where one works is largely irrelevant. Um, and you guys probably get this already just from the way Microsoft operates, but you know, it's great to be able to talk to people and meet with them face-to-face, but if you really peel back how many things that, that lawyers and the legal service delivery industry do, how many of those things, actually have to be done face to face and i would submit that very very few do um and and those that do it's mostly because well the courts say you gotta you gotta be here you can only have a jury trial in front of a jury um, you know you can only appear at a congressional hearing in front of congress um but you know once you start peeling it back how many things couldn't be done by video uh just that we haven't done them that way so that's sort of that, that that's what, what this has done, I think, is given us all an opportunity to explore, to make, to experiment, to make mistakes, to learn what works and what doesn't work. We're, we're giving ourselves perfe- uh, permission as a profession to change at least where we work. What I haven't seen happening yet, and what I hope is the next stage, is, it, okay, it's great we've talked about where one works, well, let's talk about how we work. Um, And let's talk about why. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about optimization now and how we we take everything that we do and and break it down into processes um, and break it and create platforms from which those processes are assembled and then create products, outputs that come from that. So that's P3 operations for me um, or P3 offerings, which is processification, platformization and uh, productization. Um, and that's just as relevant for law as it is for anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm hoping is that the long term perspective, uh, there will be more adoption of of this kind of concept that law is not different. Um, it is it has different content, but from a processification standpoint, it's the same.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um that is exactly what Jason myself and our our team or my team member Patty Worley is set out to do. I mean it's just you hit the nail, Jeff, in terms of what we're hoping that our legal department, you know, as and hopefully inspiring others to do the same is to now because we're forced to use digital transformation in a, an amazing way. Right. We've been, able to, we've been fortunate. I think this is a very fortunate conversation to say we've been able to work from home for the most part, provide great service to our customers still, um, using these these great you know, transformational tools, but it's about how we work and finding those processes, identifying them, thinking through, okay, I can do this better. I can optimize this part of the process even, much better and get our job
2: done faster. And I, go ahead. I mean, you guys have fantasy jobs from my perspective. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, if I were 20 years younger um, and, and had the opportunity to, to, to have the kind of tools and resources and support that you all have, mm-hmm. I, it would just be wonderful. I mean, what, what I ended up doing has been a product and a function of necessity. Mm -hmm. Uh, whatever we built we built using duct tape and bailing wire Mm -hmm. Um, and um, but uh, 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 it's just what you guys have the ability to do the resources to do um, it's just fantastic and I and I really that's why I like talking to you all because it's so exciting um, that, that, that you all are embarked on this journey I think it's fantastic
3: it is it's really exciting uh, I think you hit on, and and we we know we know we have we have the tools, right? They're here, and but what I'm excited about sharing this podcast to our public about is that a lot of what you mention is that it do, we do need to change our psyche in terms of how we approach these things, right? Because I've already faced kind of the question of well, we're so busy right now. How do we take the time to right. stop? Observe the process, make the change. You know, you know, enter solution and and result is you know great impact. How can you help us advise someone who, a, a team who is already super busy right now, just dealing with they're, they're in the firefighter mode, right? Right, right. We can get them to, to, to take some time and say, you know what, we need to get this optimization part done. Is it a focus on right. the psyche, the the culture? Because that's what we're. Kind
2: it is. I mean, to me, the place to start would be the after actions, um, because yes. there, there you identify, if, if nothing else, you start to identify redundancies and, um, uh, and inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. So if you can, you know, when people say, I don't, have time to, I don't have time to review what I did, I need to move on. No, you need to make time for that. You need to make space for that. Mm-hmm. And that investment will pay off by freeing up resources uh, in the future by not having to do the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So that's the first place. Um, the second place is then to understand, um, that after actions are not, they're like performance reviews. They're, they're You can't change past behavior. You can only change future behavior. Mm-hmm. And so give yourself permission to do that. This is not a criticism of what any person or team or function did. It's a recognition that in the future we can change it so that it's better. Um, so give yourself permission to fail. Pick it, pick yourself up. I mean, you know, every other function I can think of does this, yeah. uh, but law doesn't. Yeah. Um, so those would be kind of the the, the main steps. Uh, and then it, I, it's it's tough to say this, but the hardest thing I think is looking at the people on the bus and making sure you got the right people on the bus. Right. Um, and and that sounds harsh, um, but at the end of the day. A not me is like a cancer cell mm-hmm. um, because they will keep the um, they will keep a large portion of the population from going across the tipping point of change. Um, so you know you got to figure out how do you make sure you hire for culture mm-hmm. and how do you make sure you retain for culture. Now those are again those are that that's like saying well well you know just go. Go change everything you're doing and everything will be fine. I mean, that's not very useful advice. Um, You know, you've got to build those things, those structures and rules and tools um, that actually help. I think the place to start is by defining principles. Um, And, you know, what do we believe? What are we going to do? What are we not going to do? Um, And um, I I mean, take take as an example litigation. You know, okay, we have litigation, how are we going to deal with it? Well, we actually want to avoid it. Well, how do we do that? Well, first, we want to avoid it, but we recognize that we have it. So we want to optimally resolve any any disputes that we're in that we want to learn from them so we don't have them in the future. If you don't have people that understand that holistic life cycle of dispute resolution, mm-hmm. then they're the wrong people for your bus. If, if you believe that we don't want to have litigation, um, you know, it's kind of, Hard for me to think of anybody except for a plaintiff's law firm, um, or a patent troll that, that thinks that having litigation is a good thing. Um, but, um, I think you have to go back to the why and you have to go back to, uh, the principles, define those and, and then be really rigorous, um, about, um, deploying them and holding people accounting to them, accountable to them. And leadership has to do that more than anybody else. Um, uh, they they they've got to walk the talk more than anyone else.
3: Absolutely, getting to getting that kind of making sure the leaders are on the bus with us and, and that they 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 buy into the same piece is 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 great. Um, right. Really, really, really good for
2: us. And and so many of us um, that are in this space, we want to talk about tech, um, and um, and that's. There's obviously a place for tech, but I think of tech as a a tool. Uh, So in the way my mind works, the the progression is principles, what do we believe, Mm -hmm. rules, behaviors based on those principles, Mm -hmm. and then tools to implement what it is that we need to do. So the tools are the last thing that you focus on, but uh, we tend to focus a lot on the tools as a panacea. Um, We tend to say legal tech. I personally don't think there's any such thing as legal tech. I think there's just tech. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, you know that's again that's sort of this lawyer exceptionalism thing coming about every time we talk about lawyers versus non-lawyers legal tech uh, alternative dispute resolution anytime we use those modifiers we're we're trying to say that law is different And law is just different from a content standpoint it's not different than anything else Um, and um, so I think it's breaking down those barriers uh, and getting people to understand the ecosystem they live in Mm -hmm. which is not law land it's their company land, um, and um, and then actually the 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 second thing, other than after action, yeah. The second thing that I would do is I would ban the use of the word um, client. Mm. Um, and uh, Jason's heard me say this I think before, but um, if you if you only refer to the people that you're serving as customers, it's a, it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Because all of a sudden, if you start calling them customers, right. you you automatically start thinking, well, if this was me, how would I want this service to be provided? Right. And which is the way we ought to be doing stuff. Right. Um, so you know, there's some subtle changes, but there's some important changes. And then people will want to argue with you about no client is important because of attorney-client privilege and the fiduciary responsibility. You're talking to a lawyer then, and you're not talking to the right person for the bus, in, right. in my view.
3: <laughs> I I will be taking, I mean, so much of what you're saying today will, will stick, uh, but the the after action piece and banning the use of the word client, I like that. I, I used to support Microsoft stores where we thought about customers, right? The front line right. customers, and it's, right. it's a different approach. Like I watched my business clients, a very different approach to how we're, taking care of our customers and putting ourselves in their shoes. And that is, that is exactly something that I think everybody could learn a little bit from. And so I've learned so much from you today and I want to know <laughs> how, what does it mean to be an R3? Meaning this can't end, Jeff Carr. <laughs> what are we up to next? Like what, how can we continue to to capture this, this knowledge and, you know, that all that you have to share?
2: Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, well, Jason and and others have encouraged me to to write, um, try to write a book. um, And I'm frankly struggling with that. Um, I just, you know, I I suffer from um, executive um, attention deficit syndrome. (laughs) Um, If it's if it's got more than three bullet points on a single PowerPoint slide, I have a tough time with it. You know, I just, uh, but you know, I need to do that. Um, I, I mean, for me, um, what I mean, it's a great question. Um, when I retired the first time, um, my wife recognized, she's, a, she's the smartest person I know and my true partner, and she recognized that I wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I still, I was done at FMC, but I needed, you know, I still needed more stuff to do. I don't quite feel the same way now. You know, I don't feel the need. I certainly didn't need to be a GC again, but I, I did personally need um, some validation that what we built at FMC Technologies was scalable and repeatable and not just a fluke. And Univar gave me the opportunity to do that. I, I don't need that at this point, um, but I also, so I don't want a full-time day job uh, I mean, I'm, I'm old, uh, and I, you know, I really don't want a full-time day job, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to be irrelevant or insignificant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ha- what does that mean? I don't know. Um, I, I, what it what it ought to mean is um, hopefully to serve as a mentor uh, to some folks that are involved in this in this space. Um, and hopefully help them get over this hump of change, mm-hmm. and start adopting this broader viewpoint, um, uh, and to get out of the lawyer exceptionalism world. I don't know what that means yet. I'm not quite sure how to do that. Um, but but I I love talking to folks like you uh, that are on the forefront of this. They're engaged and they're interested. I mean, I, I've spent the last 25 years saying the same things. I mean, if you if you went back to speeches I gave 25 years ago. I mean, the stories are the same. Uh, the principles are the same. They're probably a little more organized now. Um, and there is more adoption now. There's less loneliness out on the limb of, of radicalism in lawland. Um, but it's still reasonably lonely out there. Um, you guys are out there on that branch with me. Thank God. Um, so, uh, how do I'd like to be involved in, in helping people adopt, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know what that means yet. So uh, that's a, another long answer to a good question that I don't have a good answer you
3: know, for. That's a great answer. And, and the fact that you just want to remain involved is a benefit to us all. And so whatever capacity that takes, Jeff, whether it's writing or talking or, or visiting with us, we would love more of that that time in the in the near and far future. So we wanted to just thank you for your time today. This was fascinating. I learned a lot about you and just the great work that you've done. And it is, you know, it's, you say 25 years ago, it was the same, it, it's, but it's evolved in a really unique way. Uh, and it still kind of impacts us in the very new age we're in today. So it's kind of helpful that it hasn't changed right meaning <laughs> and it's like, why aren't we moving but on the other hand it still has the overarching principles that apply to whatever situation we're in and I think that's really critical for us to be able to use uh so yeah. thank you um Jason,
2: you're welcome thank you I mean you know as you can tell I'm not passionate about this stuff oh not at all um, <laughs> and and um I mean, I, I, anything I can do to help you guys, um, anything I can learn from you guys, um, I, I, I relish that opportunity. So, um, you know, let's keep the dialogue going. And uh, whatever I can do to help you all, I'm happy to do.
1: Wonderful. Jeff, I, I'm going to push back on something that both of you were asserting, which is I actually do think that things have changed. And yeah. it really doesn't feel too lonely out on this branch. And that's because of the hard work of people like you. And so I think that you have conditioned the market by your efforts over the preceding decades. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And I suspect that it's probably hard for you to see that because you've been on that journey for so long. But for those of us who, who get to pick up the mantle and start walking it forward, I don't know that the yoke feels quite so heavy and it feels like there are more people on the the march with us now. And
2: so I appreciate I that, Chase. And I you're you're welcome. I mean, you know, for me, um, the pace isn't fast enough. It's not big enough. Uh, but that's okay, because you are right. Um, there has been significant change when I, when I look back at 2008 when we kicked off the ACC Value Challenge to today. Um, you know, there was a lot of backsliding since 2008, but. You can't find it in-house counsel that will stand up in a public forum today and say, you know, I think buying legal services by the hour is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they, they still do it, but at least they don't stand up and defend it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so at least we are making some change. I, I do agree with that.
1: Well, we are going to. So we, I think Candace did a good job of, of drawing out from you how you might like to contribute. And uh, Candace and I are shameless and greedy. So uh, we will find ways to continue to find some time between your race car driving and Manhattan mixing uh, so that we can continue to liberate some of your wisdom.
2: Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. And uh, and, I mean, what you guys are doing is just so important. It can be so impactful. Uh, I mean, you know, when you're when you've got a 10 million to 15 million dollar legal spend, um, even in a Fortune 500 company, it's hard to have an impact when you've got the kind of girth and weight of Microsoft. Um, it, it is, I mean, that's, you can lead simply by example where, where it's hard for, for smaller folks, smaller companies to do that. So, um, uh, kudos to you all for taking this up.
1: Well, thankfully, we have a, a very progressive general counsel and chief legal officer uh, who are yep. they both They both push us to move forward. So, Jeff, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for the time.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been great. To, it's always good to talk to you, Jason and Candice. It's great to meet you. Okay. Uh, we'll have to figure out if we're related somewhere down back back yeah. down. You know? yeah.
3: <laughs> Definitely.
2: All right. Well, I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you stay safe and sane, um, and uh, and I, I really hope that you uh, continue this journey that you're on. It is, um, you know, it's 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 missionary work in a lot of ways.
1: Thanks, Jen. Amen.
2: <laughs> okay. Y'all take care. All right.